This episode of Money for the Rest of Us is sponsored by a new podcast called Outside the Box. If you're a maker, a doer, an innovator, or even just a consumer who wants to get a peek behind the curtain of some of the world's greatest organizations, you should check it out. The first episode features conversations with presidents and CEOs from organizations like the World Wildlife Fund, Feeding America, and more. And you can expect new episodes about things like corporate culture in the 21st century and inventive approaches to business with great insight from some of the brightest minds in the nation. So subscribe now to Outside the Box in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. If you're looking to replace your air filter, there's no better option than Filter Buy. Filter Buy offers a wide selection of high-quality air filters in every Merv rating in over 500 different sizes, including custom sizing, so you're sure to find your filter for your HVAC unit, no matter its dimensions. Better yet, all orders ship free within the continental U.S. direct from Filter Buy's factory, to you so you get the best price possible. And now for a limited time, get 10% discount by going to filterby.com slash David. That's filterby.com slash David. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today it's a vacation special. It's a conversation I had with Michael Port of the podcast Steal the Show. I'm often asked by listeners or other podcasters, what's my process? Do I batch my episodes or how do I go about that? And and the fact is, I do not record more than one episode at once, and I do not have a backlog of episodes. I usually record an episode on Tuesday and release it on Wednesday, which usually works great, except if something comes up and something came up. My mother-in-law, Marita, passed away last week, and the funeral and other activities were on Monday of Tuesday of this week. So I did not get an episode recorded, and so we're going to play and let you share with you the conversation I had with Michael Port. Michael Port's podcast deal the show. He is a public speaker, author, and entrepreneur. He's written six books, including Book Yourself Solid and Steal the Show, the latter which, according to the former presidents of Starbucks, might be the most unique and practical book ever written on the topic of public speaking. Michael was a great interview. We had a wonderful conversation. We talked about running a business, being an entrepreneur, saving for retirement, our emotional relationship with money, asset allocation, minimalist investing, health insurance, health share ministries, robo-advisors, behavioral finance, and choosing a financial advisor. So it's a wide-ranging conversation. And I had a great time, and I appreciate Michael for letting me be on his show. So enjoy the interview. Just one other technical note, I'm not an audio engineer, and, and the sound level of this interview is is a little higher right now than the actual intro to to this week's show. So turn, I, I, hopefully I'll get it fixed in post-production, but if not, go ahead, turn the volume down in your headset or on your on your car radio so your ears don't get blown out. I apologize if I don't get this issue fixed, but I'm supposed to publish the show in less than two hours. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to Steal the Show with Michael Port. This is Michael. Today's guest is David Stein, and he's the host of the podcast Money for the Rest of Us, which is a show that I listen to religiously. I think he is one of the best in the business at teaching personal finance for the rest of us. Uh, over 25,000 listeners download his sh- uh, each episode of the show. It, it's all about how money works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. 
He also provides market insights, asset allocation help, and portfolio guidance to over 500 members of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, an investment education platform. Previously, David was Chief Investment Strategist and Chief Portfolio Strategist at Fund Evaluation Group, which was a 50 billion, I stumbled over the word because it's such a big number, I don't usually uh, say $50 billion institutional investment advisor. So that's what they did. And at uh, FEG, David was co-head of the firm's 21-person research team that provides institutional research on private equity, real assets, hedge funds, equity, and fixed income, including topical level and manager-specific research. He was responsible for top-down research, including macroeconomic analysis, market sentiment research, portfolio modeling, and capital market analysis. And he also co-founded FEG's $2 billion asset management division. He developed its investment philosophy and process and acted as lead portfolio manager for over nine years. Now, you're listening to all this and going, how the hell is this guy going to help me with personal finance? This stuff is so... Uh, you know, way out in left field for the average person. But trust me, this is what he does. He really, really focuses on money for the rest of us. He just happens to have an extraordinary amount of experience uh, in very, very large institutional investing and research as well. He's spoken at numerous investment-related conferences, including events sponsored by Morningstar, iShares, TD Ameritrade, and FinCon. So, you can find more at moneyfortherestofus.net, moneyfortherestofus.net, or moneyfortherestofushub.com. So, without further ado. Hi, David. Hey. Okay, so I, I don't have too many guests on the show whose podcasts I listen to regularly, but yours is a favorite of mine. It's absolutely phenomenal. Well, I really appreciate that. I like to think I'm not prone to hyperbole, but I mean that, you know, for me over the last number of years, a big, big focus in my life has been studying personal finance because, of course, I made the mistake of getting serious about personal finance when I had some money. I thought, well, I don't have any money when I was younger, so that's not relevant. And uh, I thought, well, there's a man in a suit. He knows uh, what, you know, to do and and uh, and he'll tell me what to do. And that's not always uh, the case. No, no, you, you learn that the men in the suit or, or the women, most don't know what they're doing, exactly. even though they're collecting fees to do that. Exactly. So I want to touch on that in a little bit. But one of the things I'd, I'd love to do right off the bat is, is learn a little bit about the mistakes that you made with respect to your personal finance early on in your life. Well, I made a lot of the, the same mistakes and, and I, it's really an, everyone has an investment journey. And so we had some early credit card debt that many people have. The you know, I started out most people's introduction to finance. They they find a stock that they want to that they, they're interested in or a company and they buy stocks. And so I made mistakes buying stocks, realizing that I don't have any type of informational edge when it comes to buying stocks because the, the stock market, it's an auction market. So when you're buying a stock, somebody is selling it to you. And unless you know more than the, the people on the other side of the trade, most of the time, 
you're not going to you're not going to win. You're not going to outperform the market. And so, you know, I, I didn't make any sort of huge mistakes. It's just small mistakes you make over time as you learn and you find the way that you're most comfortable investing. Were you a saver from day one? Is that was that always part of your DNA? Not really. No. I mean, I I just I knew I was supposed to save. And but I, I you know, we grew up in a in a pretty poor family. And so there was not a lot of savings. And so coming out of that experience, there was definitely a, a knowing I needed to save. But no, I, I over time and, and you see this with a lot of people that that end up retiring early. It isn't so much their their savings percentage. It's it's the, it comes from income. In other words, their income grows. They find a way to be created to, to increase their income and then they can save the 15 to 20 percent or more that most people need today, especially with investment returns so low, the target should be 20 percent. If you want to retire at a normal age, if you retire early, you're going to have to save much more than 20 percent. And that, and I admit that takes discipline. A lot of my listeners have their own businesses. And, you know, sometimes in the early days, you know, that that um, the, your financial situation can be anxiety provoking. And especially for those who are young, you know, you did an episode on on the American dream and, you know, asking, is the American dream dead? And just today in The Wall Street Journal, maybe you saw it. There's an article about the, the percentage of young Americans living with their parents uh, has risen to a 75 year high. And that means 40 percent of young Americans are living with their parents. That's they, amazing. That's right. ex, that's extraordinary. So, you know, even though the economy has uh, rebounded, uh, you know, to a to a, a, a decent degree, and uh, and the job uh, market is better than it has been, you know, if if we if we need to increase our income in order to save more substantially. Do you think that being a business owner will give you an advantage over being an employee or vice versa? Oh, absolutely. And and I did an, I did an episode on how you're not going to get rich investing. You you very very few people have gotten rich investing. Most have gotten rich through their own businesses. Even in the investment space, a hedge funds they're getting rich collecting fees from their hedge fund business, not necessarily always from the returns itself. Now, so so generally speaking, yeah, I think that individuals, if they they have the the willingness, should start their business, be it a side project or something. It's an incredible world out there right now where we can leverage technology, leverage the tools that we couldn't access before. And so you can start business on a shoestring and just start connecting with people and find out what they need that you have an interest and a talent to provide. Not all there's, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the word entrepreneurship is thrown around a lot, but uh, often when folks start a business, they, they're not actually starting an entrepreneurial venture, they're starting a business or they're starting a practice. You know, if you open, um, you know, a, a mom and pop type shop uh, in your neighborhood, you're probably a business owner rather than, than an entrepreneur. If you start a service-based business, you're a practice. 
then maybe you can turn that into a scalable leveraged type business that uh, that is saleable. But uh, certain businesses are, uh, certain types of businesses offer more opportunity for sale than other businesses. And, you know, from, from day one, I've been doing uh, this kind of work for 15 years, writing books and speaking and teaching. And I... I knew that the business was really the retirement vehicle. That's how I thought about it, because a lot of, you know, a great aspect of my business is based on my personal brand. And so it's a little harder to sell that kind of business than, say, Twitter, where most people wouldn't even know who started Twitter. And well, I learned, right. yeah, so, okay. so I guess I'm just saying, like, you know, I'd love you to address how you think about using your business as a retirement vehicle, because I know that the, the income generated by the business is designed to produce a retirement, not necessarily uh, focusing on designing the business so I can sell it. Does that make sense? Exactly. And, and yeah. I, I think that that's a very important component. Like, for example, my business right now, it's unsellable. Because the business is me, and I suspect yours is similar. That the business is you, which is. But then, by leveraging your talent, you can create the income and save from that, and not necessarily have a sale at the end. Most people won't necessarily have a business that they can sell at, at the end of their life. But it's creating the income stream for doing something you enjoy doing, but that creates enough income stream that you can save that 20%. And even if you're, some people love being employees, but when we saw in the investment business that I ran, it was pretty clear which employees were showing initiative and, and wanted to, to just not sit and, and focus on the widget. They wanted to find ways to improve the business. And, and those, Individuals naturally rose in the organization, and you can do that as a as an employee, or you can do it as a, a an entrepreneur. You just got to find the right match because because some people don't want to to build a big organization; they just want to do their thing. And the key is to find a way to not be a commodity in doing that thing, so that you can demand a premium fees for for doing the thing you want to do. Yeah, and what's wonderful is that the um is that the retirement vehicles that are available to business owners are uh, are are great. They are uh, much more productive than the retirement <clears throat> vehicles that are offered to employees. Uh, unless you're at a company that is you know that is very unusual and, and offering you a defined benefit plan of some significance that they're contributing to, uh, which we do here. I'm very proud of, but. Uh, you know, most individuals can't use the types of retirement vehicles that small business owners can. So, um, so it'd really be a great idea for them to focus, learn more about uh, what's available to them in terms of tax deferred uh, investing. And it's something that often they don't think about until uh, later on, when hopefully the business is done very well. But if they think about it earlier on, uh, they may, um, you know, they may benefit. So let's, you know, speaking of improvement, you talked about improvement. How do you improve your emotional relationship with money? I mean, some people hoard it. They will not spend it and they won't even invest it because, uh, you know, the markets scare them and other people won't save at all. So, well, yeah, that's, that's a great uh, question. It, I think it just comes from being honest with yourselves and, and sometimes it, it requires 
counseling, right? If you've had a, a tough relationship with money or, or money was just not something you ever talked about growing up or it was this just this undiscussable topic. Sometimes we have a lot of money baggage, but it, I think the first step is just to be open about it and talk about it and think about it and, and, and realize that money is not the end all of living, right? Money flows in, money flows out. We have to understand some basics of, of investing, but we don't have to be the ultimate expert when it comes to money. We just have to understand some basic building blocks. And, and everybody can learn how to put together a diversified portfolio of ETFs and not spend all this time worrying about it. So there's a basic level of education. And then it's, and save, 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 but just don't stress over it so much. And it, and it takes a while to get there. But you, you recognize, especially if you, if you, and I'm sure you have traveled overseas, you, you see what real money stress looks like. Yeah. In terms of the the vast majority of the people have, have very, very little money in the world and, and hardly enough to meet their needs. And even in the U.S., I was shocked by this. The bottom 50 percent of the U.S. population on average is bringing home $16,000 per year. That's wow. not a lot of money. And that, that granted, that causes stress. That's unbelievable. But for the, you know, the vast majority uh, of your audience and I suspect my audience, they have enough money. The yeah. question is managing it and, and emotionally learning how to handle it, but it, it's not the type of stress you have when there's no money at all. Well, let me ask you. Little. Let me ask you the sixty-four thousand dollars question, which I imagine you've been asked many times. How do you get people to invest when they think they don't have enough money? I can think of one person in particular I was talking to who, you know, has a, has a practice and. You know, her client. You know, her client list is a little smaller than it has been in the past, but she's still making money, and you know, she's still buying expensive things. But she doesn't feel like she has enough money to put away. How do you get them to do it? How do you make that connection? Because for me, it was this idea. Uh, uh, for me, it was it was my family, and what I wanted to do once I didn't once I stopped working. Like you know, at the beginning, I was really. I love, you know, you did an episode about working to live or living to work. I was, I was really deep into that cult of overwork and, and I was loving what I was doing and I still do, but I don't want to do it forever. So my vision became much more clear about what I wanted to do. And that helped. Is there anything else we can do to, to get people at, to put away even just a little bit? I mean, even just the act of putting away, say $50 a month is going to change the way you start to think about money. Well, I think it does. And, and what's amazing is there, there's tools to be able to do that. I mean, it used to be very difficult to invest in the stock market. The you know, brokers charged $40 a trade. Well, if you're only putting $100, you can't be paying $40 in commissions. And so now, now there's apps out there. Uh, M1 Finance is one. There, there's others out there where you can start an account for $100 and they don't you know, they don't charge commission. They just charge a, a small annual fee. And so you can actually – there's tools to do that and the, and the robo-advisors out there. So you just start getting in that habit and automate it as much as possible so it's just coming out. And and what I have found is once people start to have a little bit of savings, then they become more interested in terms of learning how to invest it. But I think in, in, in your case, 
right? It was it was your vision of what life could be like 20 to 30 years ahead and realizing that you wanted a different vision. You didn't necessarily want to be working 80 hours a week. And most people, the reality is today are not, they haven't saved enough for retirement. And so in their case, they, they need to figure out a plan, obviously keep saving, but how can they sustain a, a comfortable life, perhaps a side product, a lifestyle business or something that they can continue to work until 60s or 70s? Because that, that's just the reality of the numbers. And, and I think as, as more people, I was at a McDonald's the other day and buying breakfast and the, the back kitchen staff, I think the average age was probably 70 in wow. the back. And, and I think, you know, as we, we see more and more of that, we do. that can be a motivation for people to, to start saving more and learn some basic financial education when you're in your 40s or 50s. That we, or 30s. Yeah, I mean. it, uh, we're, I, we are seeing that a lot, aren't we? I often feel bad, you know, that somebody who is my senior like that is waiting on me uh, and, you know, doing remedial work when they may have done um, more advanced work earlier on in their careers, but they had to retire from that. And right. now they, you know, need the money. And uh, that's got to be tough. Actually, you know, even... Even, uh, you know, it's sort of a side story, but one of my uh, good friends growing up, his uh, his parents were both doctors and had done very, very well and had retired. And, and they had mm, a good percentage of their retirement uh, money uh, locked up with Bernie Madoff. Oh, wow. And they both had to go back to work at uh, 70, about 75 years old. Yeah, that, that's, that's tough, which, yeah. which goes back to... That that basic education. In fact, there was a there was a, and I'm not saying that they were at fault. I mean, you, you never know. But one thing you learned from everyone should have learned from Bernie Madoff. And, and just recently, I think just this week, there yeah. was another firm, Platinum Partners or something, was was the same situation. And you know, part of learning to invest, and that's why you start out buying one stock, and you realize markets are really volatile. They go up and down. And so if somebody's coming and saying, I've made 15% a year and never lost money, you, you just you just say you, no. You start questioning. Yeah, <laughs> you just right. like, there's something wrong here. <laughs> but if you've never invested, you don't know that. You think, well, there is some genius that can do that. Sure. And you realize there are very, very few geniuses, yeah. if any, when it comes to investing. Well, it leads to my question about trusting the markets. When Wall Street is generally, and I don't, I try to stay away from generalizations because all generalities are false, including that one. But I'd say generally, many financial advisors and many on Wall Street are not trustworthy, and and that's at least how people feel. So, how do we engage fully in say investing in the markets? When we don't trust the systemic as, uh, systemic behavior uh, of Wall Street, how do we how do we make how do we sort of uh, balance those two thoughts in our mind that you know what the stock market historically over time has been a very effective way to produce uh, generous compound returns. Uh, yet, at, yet we have these people who are very involved in the market who are making some really often very bad decisions and blowing up the market. 
Well, I, I think th- there, there's a balance there. One, individuals should have as many different return drivers in their portfolio. So you diversify as much as possible. So diversification, many eggs in many baskets. You're also diversifying fraud, right? So yeah. you're not – I mean there, there, there are unscrupulous investors. But generally speaking, the, the market itself – I mean there's people that still – you know, there's been issues with fixing of, of interest rates and, and stuff. But most of the major fraud gets found out eventually. And it's not like it cost an individual a huge percent. You know, maybe it was pennies in terms of it. And, it, and it's sad, but we have to be willing to invest, which means in learning about asset classes, learning how – what an ETF is, or an exchange trade event, and in stocks. But you kind of have to focus on on what you can learn, and and just have, you know, essentially to just start with the basics is is the way to do it, and and trust that you know fraud will be found out, and but you just got to invest. And that's what I mean when it comes down to it. Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard. Well, there's so many different investing products out there that it can be very, very overwhelming. I mean, even for newer folks, and sometimes even people who've been doing it for a while, the the concept of diversification can seem complicated or overwhelming. Well, diversification means a lot of different things, and I got to learn a lot of different things, and and that can be overwhelming. Um, you know, there are insurance products that are often bundled. Uh, with invest with so-called investment products, and they're pitched very hard. And then there are all sorts of different um, actively managed funds, which are pitched very hard. Um, you know, and well, then, I mean, that's where exactly, yeah. which is why the, the place to start. You start with asset classes and index funds or exchange traded funds, and just figure out. All right, here's how much I'm going to put in stocks. Here's how much I'm going to put in bonds. And, and fo- so don't. Not investing in individual stocks takes away half the work, right? Because suddenly you don't have to worry about what Apple is doing versus IBM. And it's such a, I mean, sometimes it's fun to play with that on the side. But if you're saving for retirement, you can just avoid that whole area and focus on just the basic, keeping fees as low as possible. Don't buy insurance products tied to investment products because the assumption there is somehow the insurance company is a better investor than, than everybody else, and they're not. And so people should protect against the downside, so have some term insurance, but don't, most people don't have to deal with in, insurance investment products. They don't have to deal with active management products. They don't have to deal with buying individual stocks. Focus on the building blocks, which is asset classes and and learning you know, what drives the return for stocks over time, and, and just sort of the basic education that you can find through podcasts and other means, and and start there. You know, eventually you want to perhaps you want to start adding what I call pockets of independence outside of the financial markets. So maybe you 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 have some some food storage, some some gold, or other other issues. You might hear that dog. My dog is wailing okay. in the background. I That's apologize. That's okay. As long that. as he's okay, he didn't get hurt or anything. It's not that kind of no, way. It's, it? it's, it's, a, it's a shih tzu. She um, expresses displeasure by acting like she's being murdered. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most bizarrest I thing. I know some people like that. So is this what, is this, 
what you are, when you're referring to minimalist investing, you did an episode on that. Is, is this the concept that you're referring to? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And an example. So I, I had somebody and I did a call webinar a while ago and generally beginning investors. and, And her first question was about currency. Should I be buying this, this currency position? And, and I said, it doesn't matter. Don't, don't worry about that, about that. But that, that's often the, the introduction of people because there's so many people out selling stuff. Their first introduction to, to investing is suddenly they want to trade currencies. Well, trading is not investing. And so a minimalist investor, right, they want to keep, keep it as simple as possible. You can build a diversified portfolio of six to eight ETFs. And, and for most people, and, and the beauty of investing in the early years, it doesn't really matter how you invest. What matters is how much you're saving. It's only later after you've spent time learning and making mistakes investing, your portfolio gets big enough that the actual return starts to make more of a difference than the, the money being put in each and every year. And so there's times to make the mistakes when, when, you're, when it's young and, and you're learning and you can try different things, but if you just if you're somebody that doesn't really like investing and it sounds too complicated, you keep it simple and you focus on the basic building blocks, which is asset classes, index funds, ETFs, and keeping your fees low. And, and people can retire that way. Yeah, you know it's 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 interesting. I, I I was an artist when I was young. I was an actor, so I I saw myself. I didn't see myself as somebody who was a numbers person. I st- still have trouble with math. My wife does all the math for us. And and yet here I am feeling very very confident about the way that I manage uh, our our finances and our investing. And my friends growing up, my best friends, most of them went to business school and then on to Wall Street. They run hedge funds. They're analysts. And you know, when I sit and we talk about this stuff, I sometimes feel like I actually am a much better investor than they are. And I know about one one thousandth of what they know about the markets. Because they- Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because they're, they're very niche. In fact, I had a call yesterday at somebody that retired from a hedge fund and suddenly now he's focusing on his own portfolio, and he realizes, well, this is actually a little different because <laughs> I used to be an investment manager, and it's one, it, it's much easier investing other people's money, particularly institutions, because they're not as personally involved in it. But the skills in me- in, in investing your own retirement is completely different than than running a hedge fund yeah. or or something. An institutional investment advisor, and so it is a different skill set. So you're right; you have learned, and and the other thing I, you have is is you're humble, right? Yeah, the, the I, thing I, about I do. The, not, I know so I know so little that I I I will not do stupid things anymore. I mean, you know, well, right? Yeah, it's it's knowing it's I mean, it's like it's this feeling of real comfort knowing that it's okay not to know everything, but you know what you need to know, and that's it. Exactly. And when I left the the investment business, I, I went to Mexico for a week, and and I I was and I, and I just I was on a beach just writing, and and I was answering what I called the the terrifying question: what. How would I invest if I didn't have a clue what was going to happen next, but everybody else was investing like they did? 
And that that's the world we sort of live in, yeah. where you have Wall Street and you have all these institutions that think they know what's going to happen, but they really don't. But they they and I think they believe they know what to happen. Some, you know, if they're honest, say they don't really know, but people pay them to act like they know. But if we don't know what's going to happen, well, that's actually a, a strategic advantage we have because then we can invest knowing we don't know what's going to happen. So that takes out a vast majority of the investments we just don't have to deal with. And so then we are investing in a way, as I mentioned, that where we can protect against the downside. In other words, we're not going to be 58 or 60 and have 100% of our investments in stocks because we believe stocks will always outperform bonds. Because we know that's not the case. We can have 60% drawdowns in stocks. And if that happens, that can royally mess up somebody's retirement plans. And so it's a completely different mindset that everyone can learn and recognizing nobody knows what's going to happen. And so if you invest knowing nobody really knows, well, then you're going to be way more diversified and, and perhaps take a little less risk than conventional wisdom and make it up by hopefully generating income in some other way and saving more. Speaking of um, predictions going wrong, we just came through an election cycle that surprised many people. Uh, we have a president who wasn't expected uh, to win. And as a result, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world, not just the markets, but in the world. And interest rates are rising for a number of different reasons, not just because uh, we have a different president who's going to have a different um, econ different economic policy. But uh, we do know now that interest rates will be rising. What should people do about that, if anything? Well, first off, we don't know interest rates are going to be rising. <laughs> but didn't, know but they, didn't the Fed just say we're going to be raising three oh, times? They, they, yes, they yeah. said that they're going to raise their short-term policy rate. But that that does not necessarily mean that longer term rates are going to rise. Oh, good. And so could you explain that? Because that that's something that clearly I didn't understand. So uh, maybe some other people don't understand that. What what's the relationship between the short term and the long term uh, rates? Well, I mean, there's some relationship. So the you have the short term rates that the Fed is is setting. So, but it's it's like a 30 day rate. So it's a very very short term rate. They don't control the long term rates. But longer-term rates are, let's say, a 10-year rate is actually made up of a series of, of short-term rates, right? Or short, in other words, if you could buy a 10-year bond, or you could buy a 30 or 30-day bond or fixed-income instrument and just roll it over every 30 days, and so there is, you know, some relationship, but it's not exact because interest rates are also driven by investor fear and greed, and so you and. And so you have that whole people aspect to investing. And so it isn't a straight relationship from, from what the Fed is doing versus what actually happens with long-term rates. And so and, – and there's, there's – there's, one, interest rates aren't predictable in that aspect because there's so many things that determine and determine global forces, for example. So even though the Fed is raising interest rates, we also have higher rates in the U.S. versus Europe, the U.K., in other areas. And so money will flow to wherever they can get the most attractive return. And that kind of puts a ceiling on, on U.S. rates. And so ultimately, we don't know where interest rates are going to go. Now, 
the, the thing I like about math or about bonds and fixed income and I teach is, you know, it is more math driven in terms of you can estimate what your return is going to be if you invest in bonds. But generally speaking, now that's that's kind of how the rates work. Now I forgot what your actual question was. Well, is you know in terms of um, so that if, led up to where you said interest it, rates are definitely going to rise. Well, yeah. So um, it, let's say if interest rates rise, uh, and we've seen some of this already in the housing market, um, is there anything that we should do to prepare or make different decisions with respect to our investing? Because interest rates affect. Uh, home buying, it affects car buying, it affects investing, and many other uh, vehicles. So is there anything that we should do to prepare for that? Well, in terms of, I mean, obviously, if somebody is buying a house or, or the, the rate's really high, I mean, we are at historical <laughs> lower interest rates, right? We're not at the bottom, but generally speaking, you should refinance. Or if you if you want, I mean, rates potentially, Odds are rates will go up. We don't know if that's going to happen, but they will go up. But the good thing is the main reason they're going up is because the economy is getting better globally. And so, you know, there's been a lot of fear. Well, rates go up. The stock market's going to tank. That's not necessarily the case, because if rates are going up and they're going up slowly, as they have been, it's usually because the economy is doing better, which can help corporate profits, which can help other asset classes. And so. I'd, people have been worried about rising rates for three or four years now, and your be, the behavior of investors shouldn't necessarily have been any different, right? They should still have had multiple portfolio drivers in their portfolio. They should have had some bonds. They should have had some stocks and other asset classes, and they would have been perfectly fine and, and not be overly fearful about rising rates because just because rates rise isn't doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a disaster in terms of the economy or the markets, now, one of the things we have seen rise, and I've seen it rise significantly in my case, is health insurance. And most of the people, many of the people, I should say, who listen to this podcast have their own businesses of uh, one kind or another. And so they've got to deal with health insurance themselves. They've got to buy their own plans. My plan for my wife, my son, and I was 15 hundred dollars and change last year and for 2017 it's twenty two hundred dollars and change and that's per a, month right oh per month yeah yeah of course and well, that would be great if it was per year and and that uh, you know it's a ppo so it's the supposedly the best platinum plan you can get but i still pay forty dollars to see a doctor who is not in network um and most of the doctors that i see just happen to not be in network because so many doctors are not taking the insurance anymore so you did an episode um where you addressed insurance do you do you have some thoughts on how we can keep our costs under control given that premiums are seem to be going up that insurance companies are often leaving states altogether so you have fewer choices and prescriptions uh you know the cost of prescriptions are going up as well well, the it's flawed. I mean, I, I did an episode because I had the same experience. I, I, my insurance premiums were going to go up 50%. And your first thought is, I'm mad at the insurance company. Why are they ripping me off? And, you, and, you, and so I researched it, and this was a Blue Cross in, in Idaho. And it turns out, no, they're actually losing money. Well, how is it they're having to raise rates 50% and they're still losing money? And as you start, I mean, there are many different influences, but the ones that I settled on in that particular episode was the pharmaceuticals. And you know, not generics, but it's the and you, you've seen instances of this with the 
the, the allergy medicine where the pharmaceutical companies essentially have monopoly pricing power when they bring a new drug to market, where they can price. I mean, they're, they're just, they bring a new cancer drug to market. Their decision on how much to price it, and, and they've, they've readily admitted this, is how much, how high can they charge without people screaming too much, either politicians, et cetera. So they have that. That's the primary driver. It's these pharmaceutical costs, and and there needs to be. I'm not saying a, a price ceiling, but there needs to be a more. You can't have monopoly power in any economy and and have it work well. And so, it's not as simple as repeal Obamacare. That's not going to solve the problem because that's not. There's only 11 million people on Obamacare, and you know eight million get some type of subsidies. It. But but the reality is it's going to have to be a systematic solution, perhaps market driven, and perhaps you know even Trump suggested allowing insurance companies to to sell across states as opposed to every state have their own little plan. But I don't have to be honest. I don't have the total answer. I just know that that's one issue that needs to be addressed somehow, and in terms of some market solution to re- so you just don't have that monopoly power because it's a huge huge driver of cost do you uh, in your own uh, case do you um, buy high deductible or low deductible plans and if you do low deductible plan or high deductible plans do you also use an HSA um, you know or or, or similar uh, vehicle for savings what's the what's the path that you took well the, the I used to just pay it. And then what I ended up doing in 2017 is, one, I had a PPO, right, which was nice because we like to travel. And you can – even though the PPO, the out-of-pocket deductible was reasonable. Well, this year, the Blue Cross divided up the state into these little pockets and like really little pockets. So likely your hospital wasn't even on there. And if you went out of it, the deductible was $150,000. And so we had used high deductible plans. It was, a, it was like a $10,000 family deductible, and it, and it worked fine. I mean, I, I set up an HSA, but I just didn't like the paperwork, honestly. So I just put the money in there yeah. and just paid our expenses. This year, we ended up doing something I hadn't even heard of two months ago called a health share, which is essentially a co-op for health insurance that you don't have to pay the, the Obamacare penalty. They've been around for decades, and basically you you pay a premium, but they call it a share, and it works just like health insurance, but your health care costs get paid by other members. And you know, I was a little apprehensive about that, but the they've been around a long time, and it brought the cost of what it was going to be $1,500 per, you know, for the, the, the Blue Cross plan, and we were down to about Five to six hundred now per month it's, with a lower deductible, it, it, which is extraordinary. So, is this one of those Christian ministry type plans? It was yeah. right, and so I mean, you have to, but it's not. It wasn't a, a situation where there was a a huge litmus test. Yeah, it was agree to live a healthy life, agree to help other people with your with their health insurance cost, 
and, and a belief in God. I mean, that, that was so it wasn't. Yeah. Most people I, I read, probably. Could, yeah. yeah. I read about this recently because I was talking to an insurance broker uh, trying to you know look at what my options were. And he's like, listen, there really isn't aren't any good options. Like, I can't get you anything that's going to make you happy. But there are these plans that are popping up. And he said, obviously, I, I have nothing to do with them. But, you know, go check them out. And when I, I read about I read the site for one of them and it, I was a little skeptical and it wasn't very clear. Well, h- how much do they cover? You know, it was, it was, I, I think they needed a little bit of help on their, um, maybe on the marketing side. Well, to, it could to be do, right. You know, I mean, the one we're it. in is, is, is Liberty. I think they cover a million dollars. And, and in my mind, I mean, I joined assuming, you know, this is a year or two. Yeah perhaps until they resolve the, the health care, hopefully resolve the health care issue in terms of, of premiums. And well, you're, because it just, you're very optimistic, uh, you know, that, that they'll well, solve yeah, it in a year or two. I'm, a, I'm a generally an optimist, <laughs> but, you know, maybe it'll be a long term. And I, I was skeptical, too. And I, you know, I'm a little trepidatious, but I've talked to once you start asking around, you realize, yeah. well, there's actually a lot of people particularly in the personal finance uh, blogging podcasting space, that they've been doing it for years. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm willing to try it out, and, and we'll see. And it's not – I mean, it, it works just like you, you got a little insurance card or a little card, and you give it to your doctor, and they, they bill Liberty, and they negotiate, they negotiate rates, which was you know one of the big benefits of insurance companies is at least, least they had agreed upon rates, so it often got knocked down in terms of the – it's just a flawed market. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> we could go it. all day discussing it, but sure. it, it we'll see how it comes out. How do you feel about robo advisors? I think they're a, a great place for beginning investors to start. I, I did an episode where I answered all the questionnaires. So I, there was seven or eight robo advisors. I answered the questions the same. And found that their recommended portfolios were all over the place. Hmm. And what a robo-advisor won't ever do is tell you what you can earn investing. They're they're not a financial planner. They will let you answer three questions or four, and they'll say, here's a mix. And it's a a diversified mix of exchange-traded funds. The fees are reasonable. The benefit of robo-advisors is technology be able to move money in and out. But I, I don't think individuals should rely on robo-advisors as their primary savings vehicle throughout their life. I think people should get a little more education on investing than that. But they're a solution, particularly for, for newer investors. It's, they've done a great job in bringing in a lot of individuals that had never invested before. But once you're there, you kind of have to go beyond that. I'm not, I'm not sure why – someone would choose, even if they're just starting out, choose a robo-advisor, especially if they're investing in tax-deferred accounts, when they can just call up Vanguard, do a little bit of paperwork, open an account there, and even just use a, you know, a total world fund, you know, or a, a retirement, you know, date type fund. Or, you know, even maybe they, they're ready to do a three-fund portfolio or something. But, you know, it's it seems like you... It's that's just as easy. You're not going to necessarily get better returns because of this robo advisor, and you're still going to pay lower expense ratios at a place like Vanguard. So that that's one of the reasons when they're popping up for newer younger investors, I kind of go, well, is it because it seems cool and sexy, and that there's some smart algorithm on the back end 
that is going to know something just like, oh, the smart man in the suit. Well, he knows something that I don't know because that's what he does. Just the same. Say, well, there's an algorithm that is going to figure this out because computers are really smart uh, and they're going to be smarter than me. So I should give them the money. (laughs) Do you know, like that's, is that what people are thinking? But see, you, you've, but you're already more educated than the most beginning investors, right? The, the, the idea of opening a brokerage account for most beginning investors the, the, is completely daunting. Hmm. I mean, I actually did a, a series just – I mean, I walked people through the steps of opening an account. And so with a robo-advisor, the app, sometimes it just seems easier. But I, I agree with you. And I took a deep dive when robo-advisor first came out because we, we had sort of done something similar – and they had really slick technology, but it was almost like the investing was an afterthought, right? So they don't have this smart – All the, they basically put together a diversified portfolio of ETFs. So it's not like it's a smart algorithm. It's, it's, it's a really cool, slick interface that can help people get started. But I, I agree with it. most people are better served opening account of Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity and learning how to invest. Yeah, my, and not rely on on somebody else, and that that can protect you down the road, so you don't become susceptible to you know, somebody unscrupulous. Not that the robo advisors are unscrupulous. I mean, they're they're building organizations, yeah. but so, so uh, there's better ways. Okay, couple more questions, and then I'll let you go. Number one, what books do you recommend for newer investors, and what books do you recommend for a little more seasoned investors? I wish I had my list. Of, <laughs> what I'll do is I'll give you a link that you can put in the show notes okay. of, of all the, the books I've read in the past decade. And, and it includes some investing books. I don't I'd, there's not actually that many great investment books out there. You know, I for more seasoned investors, I've read a lot by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anti-Fragile, I think, is a is a great book that helps you realize how unpredictable the world is. Something a little more simpler is is the book that just came out by Michael Lewis. In fact, my episode that I'm releasing this week is on that, The Undoing Project, where he walks through, he profiles Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, and they they were sort of the founders of behavioral finance and and how we as humans are flawed when it comes to our decision-making in our predictions. And it, it's a great book to sort of kind of introduce people to this concept that there's some specific things we need to do as investors to overcome flaws that we have. And an example is this whole Trump administration coming to office. I've gotten emails from people that are, are convinced to their core that the economy and the markets are going to crash when Trump takes office after he starts doing whatever he does. And, and you realize that that, that is – we use what's called the availability heuristic. We are coming up with a mental model in our mind. This is all subconsciously. And, and it's the first one we could come to. And we saw this after the Great Recession. For years after the Great Recession, any economic data, there was always the pundits and many were saying the, the next – shoe is about to drop. The next recession is imminent because what happens is we tend to remember the worst thing that happened. That's the first thing that comes to our mind. And and people are convinced that that's what Trump is going to be. 
And and so we shouldn't be selling our stocks because Trump's coming to office because we don't know if he's going to be a good president or a, a bad president. Nobody knows that. The way we should be make a decision is our regret. If he turns out to be a bad president and the economy tanks and the market falls, how will we feel if we didn't make changes to our portfolio to reduce risk versus how will we feel if we actually made changes and sold our stocks and the market went up another 100 percent? Those these are risk aversion decisions that we need to make. In other words, what is the risk? What is the the regret premium, as Lewis describes it? How much regret in terms of give up of future returns are we willing to take to avoid a 60 percent loss in stocks? That's what people should be focusing on, not predicting what's going to happen when whoever gets into office. And so this, this particular book talks about that. In it, it's a great book from that aspect. Do you have any favorite podcast episodes that you've done? Like that you would recommend? It's like, oh, these are my favorite ones. Because I know I have a couple that are my faves. My favorite is always the last one I did right now because I just and I just listened to it this week. I don't I do. I run a solo show, so I don't do interviews. And so it I listen to my podcast a lot. Sometimes I listen to old episodes because like, really? I mean, I learned stuff from myself. I don't know if you do this, but I, I learned stuff from myself that I said a year ago. It's like, oh, yeah. So but I I this this one that just is going to be released, probably will get released before this episode, so released in toward the end of December, on should you sell your stocks because before Trump enters office? I mean, that that's, I think, is an important episode, the episode on, on health care. But the way my show is set up, it's not just plain vanilla, nuts and bolts, investing in the economy. It's, it's teaching people you know, what is money, how it works, how to invest, but more importantly, how to live without worrying about it. So there is a lot of philosophy involved, a lot of storytelling, narrative driven, yeah. because I, I use the podcast as a way to learn. I'm, I'm in it. You're in it just like everyone else. We're all trying to figure this out. And that's why I love podcasting for just as a way that we can all learn together. One of the, the, th- the big takeaway for me from your podcast over time uh, has been how to think about money. And and that is that has that's to me worth more than any highly technical type of uh, show or, or episode, uh, you know, with respect to what to do with the you know small cap value or whatever. It's it's if we you know under learning how to think about finance and and put it into the context of everyday living has been so valuable to me, and I think that's. That's that's the theme that I take away from your show overall is the learning how to think about it, because once you learn how to think about it, then you can study uh, properly and appropriately and make good, sound decisions. And when you don't know something, then you can search out the answers because you have a context for them. Well, I I agree. And that's why I mean, I don't do a trade of the of the of the week show at all. This is not. This is this is evergreen content. And so your typical many listeners will listen to all 138 episodes because they do build and, and they build because I'm learning a, as I go and, and finding better ways to express my philosophy of money and and how people can can make it through a world that is becoming increasingly more complex. And so 
that's just the way it is. So I encourage people to listen and give it a try. But the thing that I love about podcasting is, I mean, there's people that you got to find what I call in, in investing, you need a virtual mentors. And so many of the people that taught me the most about investing, Seth Klarman and, and others, you know, I've only met a couple of times or I haven't met at all, but I've sort of liked the way they think and I've learned from them. And, and it's the same with podcasting. There, there's some great podcasters out there. Joshua Sheets, for example, does Radical Personal Finance. He is the smartest financial planner I know, and but he has a view of the world, and he, he has people that he teaches. And there's many others that you can just kind of have to find the just kind of your virtual mentor that can teach you about these concepts, not just in investing, but but in other areas. Yeah, you know what I'll do? Um, the the founder of uh, FinCon sent me a list of his uh, favorite um, podcasts on finance. So I'll share that with this episode as well. Um, All right, but I want- Philip Taylor. And Philip Taylor's doing, he's coming out with a podcast here in in a couple months. And he's also would be very, very good. He would. And of course, um, yours, I recommend first and foremost. Um, okay, last question. How can the the average person who is not uh, financially educated or only has a little bit of financial education, how can they determine whether or not someone truly has their best interests in mind? Because this designation of fiduciary is not always adhered to. And frankly, if, you know, if they give you, if a fiduciary gives you paperwork that says, sometimes I'll make a decision that's actually not in your best interest, they can get away with it. So, so how do you determine whether or not uh, someone who is offering you their help uh, is actually has your best interests in mind? Well, first I'll see how they're compensated. If, if there's a commission involved, then they don't necessarily have a fiduciary duty to bring the best ideas to the table. And so I, I, think, I think getting financial help is, is important. But I believe it's better to pay somebody a fee for their time on a project basis. And, and that would be a first place to start. Don't pay somebody to, to manage your money. If you can avoid it, because first off, a financial planner is going to charge one percent or more. And in a world where interest rates for bonds are two to three percent and stocks potentially will only earn six to seven percent, that's a huge chunk of money that you're paying somebody that's going to do exactly what you're going, you could do if you just spend a little bit of time in building out a diversified portfolio. So meet with a financial planner. Have them do a financial plan, even if it costs a couple thousand dollars for the project, and then go implement it yourself. You don't need – there's nobody out there smart enough that's going to do it better than you. There is not a genius out there. Most, most of us as individuals, we can't – I mentioned Seth Klarman, right? He is the smartest investor I know, and he's generated 18% annualized returns. But his fund's been closed to new investors for over a decade, so he can't find people like that. And most financial planners – they're good at putting together financial plans. They're not investors. And so understand what the compensation is. Pay people up front for the work that they do and and don't do it through a commission because that's where it becomes an issue. When it comes to insurance products, buy the plain vanilla disability insurance and, and term life insurance. Don't buy these index universal lives whole life because once we start combining insurance 
with investment vehicles, then it gets really, really complicated and very difficult to find out. So you just keep it as simple as possible. And if a financial advisor is uh, advising you to do something and you can't understand what they're saying, it's likely they don't know what they're saying. And that's a, that's a great sign right there. Well, right. Yeah. You should be able to understand. Nobody has this magic formula that – because I've I spent many years – You know, part of our business was trying to find the best investors in the world. And, and you realize there's very, very few – and and most products are too complicated. And, and Wall Street likes to have the flavor of the month, so you get these things that that they're always pushing. And so, but but for most individuals, it's index funds, it's low fees, it's diversifying as much as possible. Learn how asset classes work in terms of stocks, bonds, etc. And you can do it. You can open an account at Vanguard and put it together. And, and focus more on generating more income and having a successful life that you enjoy and saving. Many, many folks that I've talked to who, who start, who've been studying personal finance uh, tell me about a, a pivotal moment uh, that really opened their eyes to what was possible for them and changed the way they saw the world. For me, that was a conversation with my father-in-law. And... And if if a uh, you know if, if a listener hasn't had that experience yet with somebody, hopefully uh, this episode or maybe another episode of of your show that they listen to, or maybe if they you know join uh, Money for the Rest of Us Hub, uh, then maybe they'll have that experience too. And then forever you know more, the world will will be different to you. You'll really see the world in a different way, and I think ultimately a much bigger way because you'll see that you have options and you'll see what's possible for you. So thank you so much, David. I really appreciate your time. Um, again, money for the rest of us.com and money, f- uh, money for the rest of us hub.com is a community of folks. Uh, I'm not in there. So, uh, and I have no, um, personal interest, uh, or conflict of interest when sharing, um, David's sites. Uh, but that's a community of folks, uh, that, uh, you're teaching personal investing to. From my end, is the way I understand it. Great. Okay. That's right. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, so again, thank you so much. And everybody, you know, keep thinking big about who you are and what you offer the world. Uh, You know, it's a pleasure to serve you. I never take it for granted. I know my guests don't either. Uh, It is an honor to have your ear for this time. And we'll keep doing uh, our best always. Until next time. Bye for now. So that's my conversation with Michael. Just to note, the website for Money for the Rest of Us is moneyfortherestofus.com. So moneyfortherestofus.net, moneyfortherestofushub.com have been consolidated into moneyfortherestofus.com. So you can find information on the hub now called Money for the Rest of Us Plus there. I'd like to thank FilterBuy for sponsoring this week's show. Spring is in full swing. And if you haven't already, you might want to change your air filter Luckily, FilterBuy offers a wide selection of high-quality air filters in every MERV rating with over 500 different sizes of filters. So you're sure to find a filter for your HVAC unit. And now for the limited time, as I mentioned, get 10% off when you go to FilterBuy.com slash David. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I have not considered your specific risk profile. I have not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing the economy. Have a great week.